You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. If you have a Bible on your phone or paperback, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, If you don't, the text will be up here on the screen for you today. Uh, It's good to see you. Those of you joining online, we're glad that you're here as well. I know it's spring break for many, so we got a few traveling. So praise God wherever you are uh, for a chance to gather with God's people uh, and sit underneath Romans chapter 12. Just to be fair, Romans chapter 12 is a terrible place to start. Uh, It is obviously a fantastic chapter and filled with a lot of truth, but it's a really bad place to start. Uh, If you were just to uh, wonder what it would be like to be a Christian, if you were just to open up uh, to Romans 12, what you get is a list of ways that Christians should live their lives. Uh, But if you miss the first part, or or really all 11 chapters leading up to this, uh, you miss the whole reason why. Uh, You miss the reason why, you miss the motivation, uh, you miss what Jesus has done for us and the, uh, the debt of gratitude that we are in because of Christ, because uh, he's died for us, he has uh, redeemed us, he has adopted us into the family of God, he has saved us by grace, uh, through faith, uh, through what he has done, we rest on his resume, not ours, on his good works, not ours. And so if you understand all that, then you get to the list of ways that Christians should live their lives and behave in the world, then it's a response. And we have a whole lot of reasons why. But if you just start in Romans chapter 12, you'll have a list of things to do, and a lot of times that's what Christianity boils down to for some folks in the West, especially, is just a list of things to do without a really stout, solid, Christ-centered reason to do that. So uh, I don't do this often, but you should go back and listen to the last 12 months or so of sermons uh, if this is your first week and catch up on all the why behind uh, why we have drew, were driven by grace to try to live Christian lives. Uh, but in light of, of the gospel, in light of the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, Romans 12, Paul begins almost like rapid fire, just giving us very tweet-worthy things. And so we're just covering a very short portion today, Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 9 through 13. But Paul has at least 10 points that we're going to try to cover here uh, fairly quickly, a lot for us uh, to cover, uh, but it's very, very practical things if you're wondering how should you live uh, a Christian life and what are some things uh, that you should give your life to. Uh, every now and then, uh, in the Hatch family, we have uh, Hatch family meetings uh, where we call the children in and we'll sit down and we'll just kind of remind them uh, how they should behave and act in the world. Uh, normally, this happens when we're about to go into public. Any parents in the room? You've been there? You're like, oh no, here it comes. Let's have a little reminder. And so sometimes we'll call a Hatch meeting. Everybody sit down. Okay, kids, you're Hatches, right? You're already in the family. You already belong, you're already in the will, your identity is kind of sealed up. Now, here's what it means to live like a hatch. We need you to be honest, uh, look people in the eye, shake, shake their hand, be a good friend, find ways to serve, uh, find ways to love people, and we'll just kind of express them like this, you're, you're, you're in the family, this is what it means to live up to the family name. Uh, my sister, one of my sisters, 
Uh, they have two kiddos that they have adopted, uh, and they'll do the same thing. They'll invite their little daughters in and say, hey, listen, you belong here. We have chosen you. We've adopted you. Uh, you've been written into the will. You have a permanent place. Uh, you have a seat at the kitchen table that is yours forever. We have given you our name. We've put you in the will. You belong in the family now. This is what it means to become part of the family and to live up to the family name. Uh, in essence, this is what's taking place in Romans chapter 12. If you believe the gospel and you have embraced the reality that Jesus died in the place of sinners, that's us, and he gave us a chance to be saved and redeemed by repentance and faith, and you've repented, you've confessed your sin to Jesus, you've been saved, you've been adopted, you're in the family, okay? Now what we're given is now that we are a part of the family and our acceptance isn't in any danger, it's not in jeopardy, it's not based on how well we do what he's about to tell us, but he's about to express to us what it means to truly live up to the name that we have been given, um, to live up to uh, the stature of our big brother, Jesus. Uh, two parts, really, to what Paul is about to give us. Um, number one, he's about to tell us, in a sense, uh, some things, ten things that mark true Christians. Okay, so in one sense, you should be looking through this list and think, man, am, am I really a Christian? Has Jesus really changed my heart where I'm a different person? So in one sense, there are things to look at and to think through. These are the marks of somebody who's truly a Christian, uh, but in another sense, uh, it's, an, it, it's a challenge that we're, we're never going to fully and completely and perfectly do any of these things. So it, it marks who we are, but it's also what we're pressing towards. And just so that you know, uh, we're going to be pressing towards these things as long as we're alive. None of us are ever going to get to the point where we say, boom, okay, done, perfect. I just, I checked Romans 12 off the box. What's the next challenge? So we kind of live between these two realities that this is something that marks true believers, uh, that it needs to be present if we are to truly internally validate that God's done a work in us, but also this is what we're all working towards. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. If you're there, say ready. I'll read it, and then we will walk through these few verses together. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So we're going to back up and we're going to start in verse 9 and just one at a time, we're going to take these uh, marks or virtues of Christians that we should have present in some measure and think about how we can each grow as followers of Jesus in response to the gospel and the fact that we've already been accepted by God Number one, verse nine says this, let love be genuine. Everybody say love. Big idea in Christianity. Monumental thought and mega theme in Christianity. Let me run through a few things about why Paul talks so much about love and why it's uh, really important that we get the idea of, of true gospel, uh, agape type love. Uh, the Bible says that God is love. That's who he is. That's part of his character. Uh, so it's important if we're trying to understand the nature of God and who God is, the Bible says that he is love, um, then we need to, one, understand that, and two, reflect that uh, in the world. Uh, Jesus says that love is 
is how we're actually going to prove to our neighbors and coworkers that we're disciples of Jesus. Do you all remember that? He said, they will know you by your what? By your love for one another. Uh, Jesus uh, talks about love often. Paul says uh, that it's actually the greatest thing. You remember this whole list of things he gives uh, to the church in Corinth, and he gets to the end, and he says, a few things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is? He says the greatest of all these things is love. If you look in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is looking at the fruit of the Spirit, or if you have the fruit of the Spirit, uh, these things are going to grow out of your life. And the very first one, which is not an accident, the first one he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one he mentions. Uh, Jesus was uh, somewhat pushed into a corner one day and asked to summarize uh, the commandments and to give what the greatest commandment was. And what did he say? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we figure out love, we have figured out everything. If we figure out how to love like Christ has loved us, we have figured out the entire point of all of the commands. Uh, Jesus is, gives us the greatest example in 1 John three sixteen. It says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And so we are supposed to lay down our lives for the brothers. So all that to say, love is a really big uh, theme. It's a big idea. And Paul says, uh, let our love as Christians be genuine. Okay, genuine means real, it means sincere, it obviously means not fake, it means not hypocritical, it means not part-time love when people are around us and uh, different when they maybe are not around. Uh, so like, I want to talk for a moment, what does it mean for our love to be genuine, not to be false, not to be fake? Uh, we're looking at redoing some things in our kitchen and uh, had somebody come out to give us a bid on cabinets. I don't know if any of y'all have done that recently, but... Good night. Uh, and they gave us a lot of options, and basically one of the first options is, do you want real wood, or do you want some type of plywood particle board that on the, on the surface of it, it looks uh, very similar because it has this veneer of oak or veneer of uh, whatever wood that you might choose. Uh, but if you get down, it's just not, it's not genuine, it's not pure wood. It, like, there's a, there's a way in which we can be tempted to have like kind of a veneer of Christian love and true agape gospel love, but when we get down into the surface, it's not the real, not the genuine, uh, not the Jesus type of uh, love. Uh, perhaps the best example to understand this is uh, if you're a parent or if you have a parent, uh, those of you who are trying to raise kids, you know that there's always this temptation where a situation might come up and you know what you're supposed to do for the, for the good of your child. And sometimes they don't agree with that. Amen? Anybody else? I, like, we're struggling at the hatch house. Please, somebody agree with me. Like, you're like, I know what is right, and I know what's going to be best for them. I just don't know if I'm ready to put up with all the fight. And at the end of the day, what the decision becomes is, am I really going to love my kids enough to do what they don't like for their good, or am I going to give in to them and let them kind of decide uh, what is good for them? Uh, because if we go that route, basically what we're saying, that's like a, that's like a fake, like a veneer uh, type of love. It's basically saying, I mean... I, I need acceptance and, and love for my kids more than I'm willing to do what's best for them. 
And, and we can do that in all sorts of areas and arenas of life, but there's a temptation for us to not have deep, genuine, sacrificial love that truly does seek the best for someone else, but that's what Paul is inviting us to do. I think oftentimes uh, in the church, the challenge we have and the veneer uh, that is sometimes put over our love is just this idea that we have to be nice. You know, that we have to be nice and we can't offend anybody and we can't say anything that's difficult. And, and Paul is saying, like, that's not true, genuine, 100% love. So Paul starts with, let love be genuine. And then we're going to work through these other nine things, but just as a heads up, basically, what Paul is going to outline in the rest of this chapter are all very different ways that we are supposed to let our love be genuine and express that to one another. So number two, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Everybody say, abhor. That's a, we don't use that word a lot, right? And you definitely need to use the, say the whole word, right? We don't use, it's a, it's a guttural, it's like, it's this idea that you hate something that's this guttural hatred. And Paul is saying something pretty clear here. He's like, if you're truly actually going to have genuine love, then you've got to hate some things. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But in order to actually love something, you have to hate the opposite. In order to truly love peace, you have to hate war. We can't be indifferent towards war if we love peace. If you are going to love life, then you will very naturally hate cancer, right? You can't be indifferent towards cancer. I'm like, I don't know, you know, it's okay. No, if you love life, you hate cancer. If you love kids, you hate abuse. Uh, if you love life, then you hate abortion and the killing of a very uh, innocent little child. Uh, if you love the truth, then you'll hate lies. You can't be indifferent towards them. If we love unity, then we're going to hate gossip. Right? If we love purity, we're going to hate sexual sin. We're going to hate uh, pornography wherever it shows up. If we love Jesus, we're going to hate sin. And if we love good, we have to hate evil. Paul says, abhor, like a guttural hatred towards what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, it's, 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 it's important that we understand who gets to define what is evil, okay? Because it's not just go with your gut, kind of wake up today and think, you know, what is bad today? What's, what's on the evil list today? What's sin today? It's not uh, letting the culture define what is good and evil. It's not letting popular demand define what is good and evil. God's word gets to define once and for all time what is good and evil. And guess what? If you choose to abhor what is evil according to God and hold fast to what is good according to God, at some point we're going to be at odds with the culture. Because y'all know this verse, and we're living this sucker out in real time. It says that the day is coming when they're going to call good evil and evil good, and we're living in that day. That some things that God calls evil, our culture celebrates and laughs at, and some of the things that God calls honorable and good and holy and true, the world hates and so we can't just kind of go with our gut. If we're going to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is uh, good, we need to let the Word of God define for us what those things are. 
Whatever it is that uh, God decides and labels as, as, as sin or as bad, there should be a guttural response in us uh, towards that. But I think it's important, especially in our culture, to make sure that we're balancing that out with what he says, to hold fast um, to what is good. I don't know if you have experienced this. I sure have that a lot of times Christians are known much more for what we're against uh, than what we're for. Uh, maybe a lot of people know what Christians hate and don't know what we love or why we love it. So he says, not only abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. They may know we're against pornography. They may know we're against gossip. They may know we're against um, drunkenness. But do they know the reasons why? Do they know it's because we're radically for love, we're radically for life, we're radically for marriage, we are radically for kids? Like those things have to dominate, I think, uh, kind of the reasons why we have some frustrations and some hates because we're very for the things that God loves and the things that help us flourish. So let, let's like kind of do what we can in, in, our, in our time holding the baton, so to speak, to make sure that the people in the culture around us, they don't just, just know what we're against. Listen, we're for a lot of things. Like we're for the good things, we're for the best things, and we're against the enemy of the best things. That's what Paul's saying. Don't just abhor what is evil. That's important. You cannot have true love unless you have some hate on the other side. But he says make sure that you hold fast to what is good. Number three, we keep going, verse 10. He says love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, love one another with brotherly affection. This is a different word than he used uh, a verse ago. Uh, when he's talking about the love that we should have, that's an agape, very much a, a Christ-like, uh, sacrificial, selfless love that we have. What he uses here is a very different word. It's a brotherly love. It really means um, to be devoted. Paul is saying if you're a true Christian that's been it has, has embraced the gospel and has been changed by the gospel, then we need to have this, uh, this brotherly affection that Christians should love each other, especially in local church bodies like this. We should love each other and treat each other like family. Some of y'all may be like, no, my family doesn't treat me well. Let's not treat each other like that. So maybe I should put a little adder on there. Uh, we should treat each other like we should be treating our family, right? That's why we say, and we've said for six years now, that Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional what? Family, We're, I'm serious about this. We have been serious for six years about not just trying to create a place where people can come and sit next to strangers and listen to a sermon and be served and be fed, praise God for that, but to truly build a family where we know each other, we love each other, we bear one another's burdens. If somebody's grieving, we jump in and we grieve with them. If somebody's celebrating, we jump in and we celebrate with them because Paul says, listen, part of what it means to be in the family is to love one another with brotherly affection, to be devoted to each other like we're family. And I've mentioned this probably more than anything else in these last six years. That's what marked the early church in Acts chapter 2. That's what made them irresistible to the people around them. They were unbelievable at this brotherly love and this devotion they had for one another. So Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Number four, second part of that verse, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. 
if, if you've traveled really many places around the world, you probably have noticed that we live in a very low honor culture. Uh, I've been to some places in the East that they have a very high honor culture. Uh, and, and so this becomes, I think it should probably stand out when we become a very high honor people. Um, this is what it means to try to obey what Paul's inviting us to do, to outdo one another in showing honor. It means to treat everyone you meet with dignity and with value because they have it, because they're image bearers of God. You're never going to meet a human being that doesn't have infinite, intrinsic dignity and value because they've been made in the image of God. So we as Christians need to treat them as such despite what they believe, despite they may vote different from you, look different from you. We treat people with honor because they have the marks of God in their soul. That's part of what it means. It means that we're very eager to try to uh, respect one another or to outdo one another uh, with respect, um, to prefer one another more than we prefer ourselves, to be aware of the, the, the hurts and the hopes and the joy and the frustration that uh, other people have, uh, to celebrate, to mourn. Like all those things are really packaged in what he says, to outdo one another in showing honor. Have you ever been maybe to a grocery store or a gas station or anywhere with a door and you go to the door and maybe two of you get there at the same time and you're like trying to open the door for them and like you go first and like no, 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 you go first. And you're both like just kind of standing there and everybody's looking around like just one of you go in the store, all right? Like that's kind of what he's saying like no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, I prefer you, no, I prefer you, no, 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 let me open the door, let me open the door. Dumb analogy, but it works. Like, he's saying, like, try to outdo one another in showing honor. Like, what would, what would our relationships, uh, friendships, marriages, apply wherever you want, this church, your community group, what would it look like if that's the, really the kind of attitude that we woke up in the morning trying to work towards? Uh, no, your needs are more important than mine are right now. Uh, no, let, let me pick up the tab for lunch. No, let me uh, bathe the kids. No, let me clean the house. No, let me uh, be the one to get up. No, let me make the sacrifice for you. And, and if you have two people that are trying to outdo one another in showing honor, then what you have is you build this culture of honor where people feel honored because they have been made in the image of God. So Paul says try to outdo one another in showing honor. Number five, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Everybody say slothful. Do you know what that means? It means move like a sloth. <laughs> Creative, I know. The, the opposite of that, I looked this up this morning, and honestly, the opposite of sloth uh, is froth. Like the opposite of being slothful, fervent means like to kind of create this foam or this froth. So I don't even know if frothful is a word. Sounds kind of weird to say, but Paul said, hey, don't be slothful, be frothful. Write it down. That's good stuff. This is what he's saying. Like don't be a lazy Christian that just has everybody else serving you and you never serve. He says, don't be lazy. Like maybe you need a little kick in the pants and you need a little reminder. Like, I've just been lazy. I've just gotten into a lazy habit. And it's so easy to let everybody else serve me. It's so easy 
to let everybody else set up and everybody else tear down and everybody else teach in the kids and everybody else worship and, and, and work and lead in the band and everybody else uh, run cameras. And I just love uh, coming in and just being served. Paul says, don't be slothful, lazy, and not serve. Like, like some of us, we, we probably need to hear that. Don't be slothful, be frothful. He says, be, be fervent in spirit or, or have this like spirit in you that is just not willing to spend 100% of your life being served by others, but we think, you know what? I should probably serve. I should probably contribute. I should probably help. Do you remember when Peter, uh, this is after the resurrection, Peter was talking to Jesus and he's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Sorry about uh, my, my, my mess when I d- abandoned you uh, a few weeks ago, a few days ago. And he says, I love you. And Jesus says, awesome, feed my sheep. He says, feed my lambs. Basically, Peter's saying, like, I, I love you, and Jesus is saying, awesome. Show it to me by taking care of my people. So when Paul says, don't be lazy, don't be slothful, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, what is the main way in the Bible that we get to serve the Lord? By serving God's people. And we're, we are fighting against a cultural current on this. True story? Most of our culture, very similar to Jesus' culture, we're kind of taught to to try to get other people to serve us. I mean, that was the the struggle that Jesus had. He's like, listen, everybody around you is trying to get to the top of the ladder where everybody does things for them. He says, we're not that way. Jesus says, listen, I didn't show up to be served. Of all people that was, could have showed up just to be served, it was Jesus. And he says, no, I didn't show up to be served. I, show, uh, I showed up to serve. So we're in a culture that like just, we've we kind of been given this, this free permit to, and especially in the church. The church has become often a very consumeristic thing where we come in and we just want all of our needs met. And I hope that you know this. I pray your needs are met. I pray this church meets your needs. But that only happens when somebody else on the other side shows up to try to serve and to be a servant. So Paul says, don't be lazy, don't slide into sloth, have some zeal, serve the Lord. And so I, this is, I think, an important distinction. I'm not asking you to serve, okay? It's, it's very different to find a moment to meet a need and to serve. That, that's very different from taking on the identity of a servant, okay? I don't want you to just serve. I want you to become a servant. So you're just the type of person that's like Jesus, shows up, where's a need? I'll meet it. Where's a place, an opportunity? I will serve there. Not just finding a place to serve and check off the box, but becoming a servant like Jesus where we see ourselves at the disposal of God. The Bible uses some aggressive terminology to describe that. Uh, it uses the term slave. It says that if we truly believe that we're servants, then we're a doulos, we're a slave. We don't, we've kind of abandoned our right to choose. Again, if you're going to ever take that position, you've got to be convinced of the first 11 verses of Romans, right? <laughs> Nobody just shows up and like, oh, I want to be a Christian. Okay, abandon all your rights and do what everybody else tells you to do. You're like, whoa, that escalated quickly. Right? Until you find out that actually that is how Jesus has served us. So our serving is a response to the gospel. And if you have trouble serving, listen, all of us do. 
if we have trouble serving, then at some point we have missed the depth that Christ has served us. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Number six, verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. The first century church that he's writing to in Rome did not have a lot to rejoice about, did not have a lot to hope in. For them, oil wasn't going up. They didn't have a lot of peace. They didn't have a lot of economic uh, stimulus. They, they, They just had a lot of difficulty being Christians inside the Roman Empire. And yet what you have over and over and over is this group of people that had put their hope in Christ, and that led them to rejoicing. You read Philippians chapter 4, it's talking about some people who had been facing some stiff adversity and suffering and persecution. They were just known for their rejoicing. So Paul says, rejoice in hope. Eugene, we just saw him and heard from him on this video, and I talked to him a few times this week, and uh, not a lot on the surface in Moldova to uh, rejoice about, and what he kept saying, he's like, it's just such a beautiful thing because our hope is in Christ. Like, nothing has changed Our hope was in Christ before Russia invaded. Our hope is in Christ after Russia invaded. So because of that, we can rejoice. So whatever, maybe you're walking through some type of difficulty, uh, some type of affliction. Paul's going to keep going, but he's going to say, hey, rejoice in hope, meaning put your hope firmly in Jesus. And if you do, then your hope is out of reach of your suffering and out of reach of your difficulty and your affliction and the natural response to hope in Christ is rejoicing. He keeps going number seven. He says, be patient in tribulation or in affliction or in difficulty. If you're in difficulty, many of you are in many different ways. He says, if you're in difficulty, if you're in suffering, if you're in tribulation, be patient, okay? I think we lose a little bit of the, the real meaning of this word translated into English, into the word patient, um, because it's not a passive thing that he's inviting us into. Right? If you have ever witnessed somebody running a long race, maybe uh, shown up to see a friend run a marathon, maybe you've run a race yourself, like you don't get halfway through, you're tired and you want to quit, and somebody says, hey, be patient, right? Be patient. That doesn't mean just like lay down and hope somehow you finish. Like this is like a very active word. He's like, if you're running a race, be patient. What does that mean? It means don't stop. It means don't stop. What Winston Churchill said, I think Rodney Atkins said the same thing. If you're going through hell, what? Keep going. (laughs) That's what that word patient means. If you're going through adversity, be patient. It doesn't mean stop. It means do not stop. Whatever difficulty you're going through, and listen, I know some of you, there's some There's some difficult things that you're walking through. Paul says, in light of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he has done, be patient in tribulation. Keep going. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep giving. Keep praying. Don't give up. Number eight, be constant in prayer. Paul says it elsewhere this way. He says to pray without ceasing. And I learned a a little different way to do this uh, in 2020. Uh, Y'all remember 2020? 
difficult time for all of us. Like my prayer life, it kind of shifted where it wasn't always just a time where I might uh, bow my head, close my eyes, maybe, you know, go into a a certain location. But it was just kind of this constant uh, talking and this constant listening that uh, was was different than what I have experienced before because I had a lot of uh, confusion, a lot of needs. And so this is what he says, be constant in prayer. So when you're celebrating, and many of you have a lot to celebrate, pray. I don't want to bypass the celebration without telling God thank you. If God's blessed you and you're celebrating this week, then pray. Just simply tell him you're, you're grateful for it, you're thankful for it. Uh, what about when you're mourning, when you're walking through something difficult, when you're feeling the pain of loss? You pray. You may not even have the words to pray, but start praying. Be constant in prayer. When you're crying, pray. When you're laughing, pray. When you're angry, pray. When you're hurt by someone else, pray. When you are rich and things are going well, pray. When you're poor and you feel like things are not going well, pray. When you're confused and you don't know what to do, that's an incredible time to pray. Basically, no matter what happens, formulate a a part of your daily habit where you're just naturally talking and listening to God. It doesn't have to be a formal sit down, kneel down at the couch, close your eyes. It can be while you're driving, while you're walking, while you're laying down. But Paul says if, you, if, we, if we believe the gospel and want to learn to live faithfully in the world, to pray. Number nine, verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. If you've been around, you know the word saints is just another word for Christians uh, because Christians are saints, not because of what we have done, but because Jesus says we get to be saints because he has forgiven us. And he just very, very clearly says contribute, and it means financially to the needs of the saints. If Christians have needs, let's contribute. So two things on this. One, I want to encourage you to do this, and two, I want to thank you for doing this. We opened up a fund and we raised, I think, $35,000 that we sent immediately to go help what? The needs of the saints in Ukraine and Moldova. So one, praise God for that. I I could not communicate to you more uh, how deeply moving that was for Eugene and how much necessity there is with 200,000 folks moving. Uh, being displaced from Ukraine and going to various places. So, one, I want to encourage you to continually do this, and two, I want to thank you for doing this. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And number 10, we'll end on this one. Seek to show hospitality. We have talked about hospitality a lot at Redeemer. I think we planted Redeemer off of hospitality. We just became really good at cooking meals and having people in our homes. Uh, This has been a high priority for Hannah and I since the very beginning. We have hundreds of people in our house at our kitchen table every year. And and community group leaders are doing this and staff is doing this, a culture of hospitality. And, And before I walk through this, because I think this is incredibly important in the culture that we live in, notice, go back and look, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. If you'll notice, he does not make this optional. Did y'all notice that? He doesn't say, if you have a big house, you should consider being hospitable. He doesn't say, if you're an extrovert, you should consider being hospitable. He doesn't say, if you love your stuff and you don't want anything to be broken or anything to be messy, you should consider to be... He just like says, listen, if you're a Christian, seek to show hospitality. Another thing I noticed that he doesn't say is... Take on the attitude of hospitality, right? That's way too easy. 
Okay? You can have the attitude of hospitality for years without having someone in your home. So he goes a step further. He's like, don't just have the attitude of hospitality. Seek. Everybody say, seek. What is he saying? He's like, uh, make some room in your calendars. Go out and follow, like, actively try to show hospitality because we all know this. If we don't, what happens? Nothing. <laughs> like the schedule's full. Everything is insane. The pace of life is insane. So what if each of us trying to think, you know, this isn't optional. This seems like a command for Christians uh, to, to set some time aside, whether it's weekly or monthly on our calendar. It's like just this is hospitality night. It's on the calendar. It's set in stone. Who's coming over? I don't know, but I'll find somebody. Like to seek to show hospitality. Very basically, what does hospitality mean? It means having somebody in your home, in your apartment, in the place that you live normally for a meal. Why is it so important? Uh, it makes people people. I don't know if you've noticed this, but things that people say that's ugly online, uh, they would rarely say that to someone to their face, right? Why? Because if you're talking to someone face-to-face, they're no longer an idea. They're an actual human being with feelings, and so it's incredibly important to get them in your house because then you see people and you show honor and you see they have, they have dignity because they're made in the image of God. Uh, in hospitality, inside of living rooms, you can have very difficult conversations. You can have conversations about things that you differ on that would be a dumpster fire online. I just true. You can have political conversations. You can have all sorts of conversations that are civil, and, and you both walk away and you learn things. You can have those conversations at a dinner table that you may not be able to have uh, somewhere else. I think it's important in our culture because we've talked about this often. Our culture in the U.S. is exceedingly lonely. People are lonely. They don't have solid relationships. What's the best way to build relationships that people need? Hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. And why is hospitality a a big deal? Well, food is normally involved, and food has this almost like magical way of disarming and kind of helping conversation flow. So I want to encourage you, as Paul says here, to seek to show hospitality. And we've talked about often, gospel hospitality is not the same thing as southern hospitality. Y'all remember this? Southern hospitality is everything has to be perfect. The kids all have to have clothes on. The meal has to be awesome. The doilies have to be out. And it's kind of all about image. Gospel hospitality is about the other person. Like, you know, we want a meal. We want to sit down. We want to talk. We want to listen. We want to see their facial reactions and their nonverbals to truly understand what's going on in their life. It's very different. If you're in my community group, you know, like, it's just real life. You walk in, you may get to help fold laundry. That's true hospitality, right? Uh, Jesus did it this way. He, he, didn't, he didn't have, he was homeless. So he wasn't inviting people over. He was inviting himself over. Some of y'all may want to take that route. You're like, no, no, you want, I'm going to ratchet this up. I'm going to be like Jesus. And Jesus said, listen, I am coming to your house today. Y'all remember that? Try that today. It's like, I want, I'm trying to be faithful. Jesus said, be hospitable. He did it this way. So I'm coming to your house and I like ribeye. See what happens. You never know. I've had a lot of people do that to us over the years. A lot of the, the young singles that I just absolutely love sometimes will be like, hey, can we come over? Yes. 
Maybe we'll have ribeye. Maybe we'll have leftovers. I don't know, but it'll be great. Like, seek to show hospitality. I've said this before, but I believe hospitality, relationships with human beings in a home, in an apartment, at a dinner table, it's one of the most powerful weapons the church has at its disposal in this moment in time. I believe that. If you want to see people come to faith in Christ, invite them to your house. If you want to see people grow in the faith, if you want to see lonely people find a family, uh, let God use your dinner table and your place of residence as a tool for him to do that. Paul says to seek to show hospitality. I don't have time to get into this, but how the early church responded to Paul's admonitions towards hospitality changed the planet. Not only did it allow Christianity to flourish and explode and escape the persecution of the first century because when persecution started happening, people ended up all over the the known world and they would normally wind up in a Christian's home because a Christian was the only one saying, you know what, Uh, come to my house, you can live with me. What what would would be birthed out of this eventually is what we know of as hospitals. Like that's a, a, it was radical Christian hospitality that has changed the globe. So I want to encourage you, maybe it's once a week, Maybe it's once a month. Maybe you're super intimidated. It's like once a year. Start, start somewhere and seek to show hospitality. Romans chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 12, we have a picture that Jesus was perfect. He was a sinless, spotless lamb of God. He died on the cross in our place so that we could be saved, forgiven, accepted, adopted by the grace of God through faith in Christ and after that happens, we've, we've been given the family name, invited into the table, written into the will. Now Romans 12 is how we live. So I invite you to think through this week what from this list are things that the Holy Spirit might be uh, working on you uh, in your heart. And just invite us as a church family to grow in these things together as we seek to respond to the gospel. Let me invite you where you are to bow your head, um, to close your eyes, and let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. God, I am in, in awe truly of, of your goodness and your mercy and your love. God, no greater love has been shown to this planet uh, beyond what you did to send Jesus to die on a cross in our place for our sins and to demonstrate um, the true nature of love. God, it's deep. It's sacrificial. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to demonstrate that type of love towards each other, God, in this room and in our small groups and in this church and towards our neighbors, towards our coworkers. Help us to truly have a genuine, a real, a deep-seated love that comes from you, Father. I pray for each one of us that uh, this wouldn't just be information that we learn today, but it would chisel some rough edges off and maybe put some new things in so that we come out looking more and acting more like Jesus. That's what we want more than anything, to be a faithful witness in the time that we have. So, Father, help us and empower us by your Spirit to live as you want us to live in the world. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.